Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would continue to give us eyes to see you for who you are, and that you would continue to give us a willingness and a sense of surrender to the lives that you would have us to live. Do that to the sake of your own glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a confession to make, and that is, if I could plan out in a fair amount of detail the next 10 years of my life, I would. I would plan out those things for my family, for my wife, for my kids. I'd even plan them out for our church if I could. And I can guarantee you that as I plan them out, it would include a lot of ups and very little downs. The next 10 years would include a lot of joy and very little pain. It would include a lot of success and very little or no failure. And in the end, if God allowed me to do such a thing, we would all be sorely lacking as a result. I wonder how you would plan out the next five to 10 years of your life. Who would you make your priority? What types of things would you want to experience? What goals would you seek to attain? I love it when a good plan comes together. And we all know that that is so rarely the case. And I've come to the conclusion over the last number of years that we're better off for it. Some of us go through life trying to grab the bull by the horns to really make it happen. Others of us sit back and sort of are comfortable to let life happen to us. And in the middle of our goals and plans and our efforts, we see that God himself is accomplishing his very own purposes. And he chooses to do so in ways that you would never choose. God chooses to accomplish his purposes in ways that I would never choose. And in the end, his plan always comes to fruition. That's what we see in the book of Ruth. If you haven't been with us for the last number of weeks, we've been going through this book of Ruth. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to Ruth chapter 4. You can find Ruth uh, 4 on page 224 of that pew Bible in front of you. And please do open it because you want to keep up today. We see in this story, the story of a mother named Naomi whose husband and sons die. Naomi is left in the foreign land of Moab with her now Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. And they cling to each other. And one thing is certain. Nobody would choose the type of loss and grief and pain that these two women have gone through. Their husbands are dead. Nobody would choose the sense of insecurity that lies before them as they come back to Bethlehem, now Naomi back in her hometown and Ruth the foreigner in a new place. Nobody would choose the lack of a concrete hope presented before them. In short, nobody would choose this plan as we've seen it over the past number of weeks. But God somehow takes this plan and brings it to fruition. And it's a good plan. Ruth and Naomi are back in Bethlehem. And for those of you that haven't been with us, let's, let me give you the Reader's Digest version. They're back in Bethlehem. They're desolate, destitute women. They're presented now as beggars. And Naomi is bitter toward God. 
Ruth goes out and she picks up the leftover grain off the field just to provide for their basic needs. And yet God blesses them. He blesses loving kindness in their very midst and blesses loyalty. And Ruth meets a man named Boaz. Boaz, not only is the owner of the field who gives graciously to her, but he also happens to be a kinsman, redeemer. That is to say that he's a relative of her dead husband. And as such, he has the right to bless them uniquely by caring for them and even by taking Ruth as his wife. Well, reading between the lines in this story, you see that the two fall in love and that Ruth makes a proposal to Boaz on the threshing floor while he's winnowing grain, and Boaz gladly accepts. But there's a hiccup. And that is this plan so uniquely woven together with God's care and his providence in their midst, but there is a redeemer who's closer. There's a kinsman closer than Boaz. And that's where we left off last week at the end of chapter 3. Boaz says, there's somebody closer than me that has this right over you and over your property. We'll see how it works out. The perfect picture is in jeopardy. The great story, tension exists. Ruth has anything but an easy road, and yet along the way it's clear that God has provided for her, even in the midst of difficulty. And that's where we pick it up at chapter 4. So follow along with me as we look at the tense moments of the unknown. We see that now Boaz had gone up to the gate. This is in Bethlehem. And he sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here, And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz wastes no time. Ruth proposes on the threshing floor. He's very inclined to accept the offer, but he does the right thing. He's a man of integrity, as we've seen again and again and again. And so he goes, and you can almost picture the scene with me, can't you? As he sits near the gate in Bethlehem waiting, patiently waiting for the other kinsmen to come by. Seemingly almost no amount of time passes. Remember, God's providential care is working out in the midst of this story. The man passes by. Boaz says, hey, Come on over and sit down. He calls ten elders of the city who are also nearby, and they witness the conversation. Now, it's interesting that as Boaz approaches this nearer relative, he does not tell him about Ruth's marriage proposal, as you might expect. Instead, he tells him that Naomi, the mother-in-law, is selling her plot of land and asks if he would like to buy it. After the 
land. The man has agreed to purchase the land, thereby protecting his own interests. Then Boaz drops the bomb and informs him, not only are you getting the land, but you're also getting the Moabite daughter, Ruth, as well. Now, by redeeming Ruth, there's an understanding that when Ruth had children, that they would inherit the land and it would stay in the line of her deceased husband. You see this with me in verse 6. He tells her about Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That is to say, you take on this young woman, the expectation is you have children with her, those children inherit this land that you are now inheriting or buying. And the story continues to get a little sticky. Not only does he have the opportunity to redeem Ruth, but there is an expectation attached. The expectation is that you redeem the land, you redeem Ruth, but you also take in Naomi, the old widow who is selling in the first place. And as you take in Naomi, you're expected to care for her and to provide for her until one of Ruth's children would be old enough to provide. Now, perhaps you've heard the saying before, be careful who you marry. Because you never marry just one person. (laughs) You marry their entire family as well. Never was it more true than in this case with Ruth and Naomi and potential children and land inheritance and the like. This man is now potentially on the hook for much more than he originally bargained for. And so, we see that he backs out pretty quickly. Remember, these men were under no legal obligation. The redeemer or, or the unnamed redeemer or Boaz, they didn't have to redeem Ruth and the land and Naomi. But there was a moral obligation to do so. Ruth probably would have been fine. She potentially could have married, but not Naomi. Naomi was now moving toward an elderly widow, and the moral obligation to care for the members of your family, this is a theme that just rides throughout this whole book of Ruth. Loving kindness, loyalty, commitment, and care, particularly for those who can't care for themselves, particularly now for the elderly. I wonder if you consider the care for the elderly relatives in your family as your moral obligation. That God has placed them and you together and that as they get older, as a person of God, you're morally obliged to care for them. We live in a time right now where this probably hits a little too close to home for some of us because the longer we move on in history, the more medical advancements continue to prolong the life of our parents or grandparents. I mean, people live longer now than they have in centuries, maybe even with the exception of the early stages of Genesis when they all live to be like 700 years. You combine that with the fact that there's more physical resources, at least in the Western world, than there ever been before. Social security, pensions, retirement accounts, all those things mean that not only are elderly people have, are resourced longer, generally speaking, but there's medical ability to keep them relatively healthy for longer. And yet, 
as the medical, as the elder care industry continues to boom, there is a fascinating and very sad correlation that's happening. People have greater external care available, while at the very same time, the internal care that happens between family members is continuing to decline at a staggering rate. This is perhaps best illustrated in the extreme example. In July of 1995, the city of Chicago experienced a heat wave that gripped the city for over a week. On July 13th, the heat peaked at 106 degrees. And during that week of intense heat, Chicago, you can imagine, turned into an urban heat island. Most of the city's brick-and-mortar buildings absorbed heat, along with the concrete and the asphalt on the streets. This tremendous amount of heat that was absorbed into the buildings and into the ground then was not released during the evening because the heat never really broke. And as a result, apartment buildings in the city became like ovens for people. The town, of course, looked to their leader, then Mayor Richard Daly, to offer some solutions, and he had nothing to say of intelligence. He simply offered a common sense uh, commentary stating the obvious. Quote, it's hot. It's hot out there. We all walk around out there. It's very, 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 very hot. End quote. As the heat continued, this became much more than a nuance for the people of Chicago. It actually became a full-fledged killer. The Cook County morgue started overflowing with bodies. Refrigerator trucks were bought in to store the dead. Workers were averaging 13 autopsies an hour, but the bodies kept on coming. And in the end, the heat wave was blamed for 739 deaths. By way of comparison, that is greater than many of the natural disasters we have experienced in our lifetime or many of the terrorist attacks that we see in the news with some amount of regularity. How did people, how did so many people die in this heat wave? When people started to review the official reports and the files of those who had died, they found a consistent theme, and the theme was this. Social isolation. The people who died were often elderly people who were living alone. Although it's not a primary application of this passage, it's certainly a secondary application throughout the whole theme of this book of Ruth. Godly living Godly loving kindness is expressed in taking care of your elderly family members. Plain and simple. If you want to mirror some of God's priorities in your life, which we all do, one of the ways that you do that quietly and difficultly and long-suffering is by taking care of the elderly in your family. We have a moral obligation to do so. 1 Timothy 5 points to this ongoing moral obligation. That whole chapter in the New Testament is talking about the care for widows, at least the first half. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So I want to say to you today, and I've, I've already talked to so many people after the first service, who are in the difficult throes of caring for elderly parents or grandparents. 
keep going. Just keep going. It is a godly, quiet thing to do. It's hard, it's good, but it reflects his loving kindness and priorities. His commitment and his loyalty to those who he's given you in your very family. And for those of you who are younger, who do not have that yet, be prepared. Be preparing yourself to think how you might care for your parents when that day comes. Well, let's move on in the story. We see that God, there's tension here. Maybe Ruth and Boaz aren't going to get married at all. The, the fairy tale ending might not happen. But the near redeemer says, <gasps> I don't know if my wife is going to like taking on this. I don't know if I want to like taking on this. I'm going to bail out despite his own moral obligation, and Boaz steps in. And that's where the story picks up. Verse 7 says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and he gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, who were the sons. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were gathered at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so Ruth and Boaz, Ruth took Boaz. And she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So the near redeemer passes on his moral obligation and the right passes to Boaz. Boaz quickly confirms his willingness to redeem the land of Elimelech, but more importantly, to redeem the woman, Ruth. And she becomes his wife. The love story is being completed. And in that comes the care for Naomi, the mother-in-law, as well. And if you've been here for the past four weeks, think back with me. Think back for, with the ups and the downs and the left and the right of this story and how God is blessing these three unique people. It's not a story that they would have chosen for themselves. Boaz would be the hardest one to know. He's spoken of in some ways the least if he would have chosen this plan or not. 
but he is blessed through his marriage to Ruth. He is given a son as a result, but his greatest blessing is found in his legacy. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. Think about Naomi. Naomi, this woman who God is bringing her plan to fruition through. She's cared for in this way for the rest of her days. And I wonder if you recognize that sort of basic form of care in your own life as a blessing from God. You don't feel it until you've been in a place of great need or great hardship. But the fact that you have your basic needs met, that's not your right. God is blessing you simply through caring in this type of way by giving you people in your life who care for you, just like he's done to Naomi. This is some of his most basic blessing. But beyond that, when you take a step back and look at this story from start to finish, you recognize that Naomi would have never picked this life for herself. Remember, her husband takes her to a foreign country, Moab. Why? Because they were starving. They get there and he dies. And then her sons die. The amount of, feel it with me, feel it. The amount of pain and anguish that she went through through that season of life is just right up there with the greatest pains or even greater than you've experienced in your own life. Think about those greatest pains. Divorce. The loss of a loved one. A rebelling child. A miscarriage. Losing your job. Those things that keep you up at night that you just don't brush off. That last, the sting is real. And it's profound in its nature. Naomi finds herself in that very place that she would have never chosen. And as a result, she enters bitterness toward God and toward other people. In that bitterness, there's still a ray of hope. This Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, clings to her and gives her an oath that she will go wherever she goes, that she will be with her all of her days, and loving kindness is displayed. But they move back to Bethlehem, and they're destitute. Their most basic needs are not met. They're reliant on other people. And so Ruth has to go out and glean the fields, but there's hope. As she does... Ruth meets Boaz, and Naomi starts to see these needs being met and what God might be doing here. And so she blesses Boaz at the end of chapter 2. But time goes on. And now she's coming out of this place of bitterness, this place of need, and she's looking out for Ruth's well-being. We saw in chapter 3 how she seeks rest for her, how she wants her to find her own husband. She would never choose the ups and downs, the left and rights of this divine drama. None of us would ever choose that. And that's because Naomi is just like you and she's just like me. Undoubtedly, she would have choose to avoid pain at almost all costs. She would choose to have personal success. She would never choose to rely on anybody else. All of us are that way. And yet, we see in the end, if she would have chosen that path, even if she could have, she would have been lacking that's because God has a better plan. It was a harder path for her to take. But it was better. And the same is true for you and the same is true for me. 
Sometimes we look at life, and I'm reminded of the kid who goes to one of those old-fashioned candy stores, and he goes in, and he sees the bowl or the jar of candy on the counter, and they charge you like a dollar or maybe two dollars to reach your hand in and grab as much as you can. And the boy goes up, and he approaches the shop owner, and he makes his desires known. And the shop owner says, well, go ahead and stick your hand in the jar, and the boy refuses. And so the shop owner says again, well, go ahead and stick your hand in the jar. And the boy says, no. And so the shop owner then sticks his big hand in the jar, and he grabs a handful of candy, and he reaches down to the boy who now has both of his hands open and cupped to receive his bounty as the man fills his hand. The boy now receives twice as much as he could have taken for himself. I think so many of us approach life that way. We go through life and we plunge our little hands into the candy jar of our plans and our desires and our goals. But if we would just sit back and open our hands and let the one with the larger hand give plainly and freely to us, we would have so much more than we could ever get on our own. God reserves the best for the people who trust him. And he does that for you and me. And so as we look at this story of Ruth, we see that even in the midst of tragedy, have confidence that God has not abandoned you, but that he completes his redemptive work in your life and he blesses the loyalty and the love of those who faithfully follow him. Another way to say that are simple ways that God can take our hardest moments and he can turn them into our greatest blessings. You might even argue that Naomi is the main character of this story. Her story is as remarkable as Ruth's. And it ends with this ups and downs and these lefts and rights, but look at, look at how it ends in chapter 4. The last things we hear of her are a blessing and an, and, uh, an observation. Here's the blessing. Chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. Look at it with me. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you your life was terrible. And he has not left you. This day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. You thought you were a destitute old widow who was going to die hungry by yourself. But now you have a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And here's the observation, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, The son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Of course the son wasn't born to Naomi. The son was born to Ruth. Naomi's a grandmother, so why would they say that? Because a woman who was left empty is now brimming with fullness because of God's care for her as expressed in this son, this grandson, Obed. God takes our hardest moments. God takes the plans that we would never choose and he can turn them into some of our greatest blessings. Think about how he's blessed Ruth in this. Ruth the Moabite would have never written this plan for her life. 
Her husband died when she was young. She had no children of her own. So out of steadfast love, she vows to stay with Naomi. She works hard picking up the leftover scraps off the field in a foreign land. She learns probably a new language, new customs, and obviously she meets a new God. In that field, she meets that God under whose wings she comes to take refuge. And then she meets Boaz, the strapping landowner, who also happens to be a kinsman redeemer. And now they fall in love and they're married. She would have never chosen the hard steps. But if she didn't, she would have never received the blessing. She would never found herself in this very position. Look closely at the type of blessing that this is. Verse 13, give us a hint to it. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her a conception and she bore a son. Ruth's marriage to Boaz changed her identity. It's a subtle thing that most of us probably missed. Throughout this whole book, Ruth is referred to as Ruth the Moabite. The Moabite, Ruth. The foreigness, Ruth. Her identity is wrapped up in the fact that she's not part of God's people, that she comes from a nation that sits under judgment, and now she's a stranger in a strange land who we should just sort of give practical pity to. But now, in verse 13, she marries Boaz, and she's no longer referred to Ruth as Ruth the Moabite. She's just called Ruth. She is a full-fledged member of the community of God. With no reference to her ethnicity. She's been redeemed. And her redemption changes everything. And I want you to know that that is what happens when you become a member of the community of God. When you are redeemed, when you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, when you come into a relationship with God that's eternal in nature, when you say, God, I want what you have, please forgive me for the ways that I sin against you. And you enter into this active, dynamic relationship, this trust in Jesus to provide for all of your spiritual needs, temporally and eternally everything in your identity begins to change. That's what the Bible calls being born again. It's what we see again and again referred to as new life. It's what Romans 6 says, that you are dead to sin and alive to God. It's what Paul says, that you become part of the family of God, the community of God, the body of Christ. This is what gives you a hope and a future, is a change in identity. And all of this happens because God fulfills his redeeming work he brings it to his fruition in your life. Your identity changes. Just like Ruth, you are redeemed. He takes us from people who are desolate with no hope and no future and brings us into standing to receive his eternal blessing. God takes our hardest moments and he can make them into our greatest blessings. But in the midst of your tragedy, you can have confidence that God doesn't abandon us. He completes his redemptive work. He doesn't see it through halfway. He goes all the way. So have eternal perspective and continue to live faithfully exercising loyalty and love to those he has in your midst. 
The story concludes with the legacy. Look with me at verses 17 and on. We see that the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying that a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. The genealogy is listed at the end as proof. These aren't things that are just sort of ethereal in their nature, that, oh, yes, God blesses you if you stay faithful to him. God takes the hard things in your life. He can use them as blessings. No, here's actually the proof. How much blessing did he actually give? Not just blessing in their immediate life, but blessing that far extended beyond their own lives. They died before they ever realized how great God's blessing was to them. The same is going to be true for so many of you who faithfully follow him in your life. You will not know this side of heaven how great God's blessing is to you. How great was it to Ruth? Obed fathers Jesse. And Jesse fathers King David. The greatest king in the history of Israel. Who would eventually become the forerunner to the Lord Jesus himself. Naomi was bitter. And now she's a grandmother. God didn't abandon her. Ruth was a foreigner. She came from a nation who worshiped false gods. She knew nothing of him. And he brought her into the family. And not just brought her into the family but made her a matriarch of his very own son. God's blessing in your life is so much greater than you see momentarily. It extends even beyond your own lifetime. I love it when a good plan comes together. Even one that we would have never chosen. And these types of plans are the plans that he's working out in you and in me. He is a great and mighty God. And so keep trusting him. Have confidence that he doesn't abandon you even in the midst of tragedy. And know that the loyalty and love that you exercise is important to mirroring him and something that he blesses. Let's pray together. Our worship team is going to come. We're going to continue to praise God for these great things. Father, you see and know so much more than we do. Your approach, your plan is infinitely greater than our minds can see. Forgive us for our short-sightedness, we ask, for those moments when we in bitterness say, how dare you do this to me, God? Help us to have an increased faith, an eternal perspective of the things that you work out, even around us, and help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name.